Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, September 8th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I still don't really know what this means, but it's the beginning of the new Q season. Watch that, Tom. You were here last week. I know. Watch that, Tom. There was no cliffhanger at the end of last season where I'm like, coming up in three months, find out what Jane Fonda thinks of something. That didn't happen either. But either way, my boss is around here telling me this is the beginning of the season, and God darn it, I believe him. I believe him. So, welcome to the season five of Me on Q, which seems a little crazy. Uh, today on the show, Jane Fonda, as I mentioned, is on the show, talking not about her film career, but about perhaps what her legacy will really be. You know, after, I, I've never seen Barbarella. I've never seen Clute. Um, Mom watches Grace and Frankie, and I watched Book Club for work one time. But my God, I know Jane Fonda as an activist, and I know her for her work in uh, against climate change. I know her, her for her work against Vietnam um, as a feminist, especially in the 70s and 80s. And we talk about where that comes from, where this idea of being the biggest star in the world winning Academy Awards and using your voice to help others comes from. Jane Fonda in a, a lovely, rare interview today. After that, Stefan Macchio, who is one of the biggest Canadian musicians you might have never heard of. He's written music for uh, the likes of The Weeknd and, and Miley Cyrus, but also his own songs on solo piano have like millions and millions and millions of streams on Spotify because they give, uh, as the name of the album will suggest, a bit of solace at a time when things seem pretty hectic. And then finally, Coffee, who is the youngest winner of the Grammy for Reggae Artist of the Year, also the uh, first woman to win Reggae Artist of the Year at the Grammys. And she's amazing. And we have a grand old chat about faith and about God and about inspiration and about respecting your elders and about why she's changing the world of reggae right now. All right, show starts now. Jane Fonda has been a big presence in our culture for generations. She got her start in movies in the 60s and 70s. There were films like Barbarella and Clute. Most recently, she's been in movies like Book Club and the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. Jane Fonda has two Academy Awards, seven Golden Globes, and yes, an empire of workout videos that might be stashed underneath your couch right now. But there's another thread that runs through Jane's life. Activism. For more than 40 years, Jane has used her celebrity to stand up against war, racism, inequality. And she's still protesting today. That is Jane Fonda getting arrested in Washington, D.C. just before her 82nd birthday. She moved to the U.S. Capitol to lead weekly climate change demonstrations. She called them Fire Drill Fridays. She'd show up every week with a red coat and a megaphone to lead thousands of people in civil disobedience. She's been arrested four times, spent a night in jail. And Jane explains why she's doing all this in a new book called What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action. You're about to hear us talk about her life, and we tossed in some pretty wild archival clips, too, including one of uh, then-President Richard Nixon talking about Jane as she was protesting. But we started first with Jane Fonda's most recent arrest. And I was curious if she ever imagined she'd spend a night in jail in her 80s. Well, I never imagined I'd live this long. If I, I mean, I guess if I'd ever imagined I'd live this long, I would have figured I'd go to jail. Women get much feistier and braver when they're older. I mean, you write about being the kind of person who walked the walk, you cut back on red meat, you got an electric car, but then something changed and convinced you to ramp up your own climate activism. What was that? A year ago, I was in Big Sur with friends, which by the way, Big Sur is burning. God help us all, it's on fire. Um, and I read a book by Naomi Klein. She's a Canadian. She certainly is, yeah. 
all of her books have a huge impact on me in my life. But her last book is called On Fire, A Burning Case for a Green New Deal. That's what I needed to get me off my duff and into action. I knew that I needed to do more. I started reading the science and realizing that the window of opportunity, you know, it's closing that window. We have to work real fast. Greta Thunberg inspired me by her putting her body on the line. Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. And so that made me realize that what I wanted to do is put my body on the line. I'm a celebrity. I'll raise a lot of attention that way. When did that start? Take me back to the roots of your activism. What's your earliest memory of being so moved by an issue that you had to do something about it? Um, 1970, the indigenous people in in North America who were protesting a, a lot of things, including their salmon rights that were being damaged by dams being put in and their cultural heritage and land being taken away. So that was my first arrest was with Native Americans up in um, Tacoma, Washington. In came Jane Fonda with her entourage. We climbed over the fence and then the military was unleashed. That's when I really realized that I had a special responsibility because I was a celebrity. When I realized what it meant to have my presence there among all those tribal nations that were protesting. But in the past, you've talked about how as a young woman, you were the daughter of Henry Fonda. Well, you are the daughter of Henry Fonda. There were certain expectations of you as a woman. And how did activism fit into those expectations? Well, believing in Believing in standing up for the underdog, that was part of my upbringing. I mean, look at the films my father made, Grapes of Wrath, Twelve Angry Men, The Wrong Man, The Oxbow Incident. Those were the films that he loved, and they were about fairness and justice. There are 11 votes for Gilly. I won't stand alone. We'll take in a Gilly verdict to the judge right now. All right, let's do it the hard way. Yeah, that sounds fair. Everyone agreed? Anyone doesn't agree? But you see, the thing about the Vietnam War, it was a generational struggle. So there was a lot of intergenerational clashing. I remember when he he went over, my dad did, over to Vietnam with the the USO, you know, the entertainers who go over and entertain the troops. He was invited to do that. And when he came back, the thing he kept talking about was there are no battle lines. You don't know where the enemy is. He was just flummoxed by that fact. But he was just worried that I was going to get in trouble like celebrities had in the 50s when they spoke out. Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I should like to see what you have. Well, you will pretty soon. You know, I'm a person of privilege. And when I realized that what I wanted to do with my life was to put my body on the line for issues that I felt were important that I could help with. Um, The more that they attacked me, the more I dug in my heels and moved forward with resolve. Put put your body on the line is important there because it wasn't just making speeches, and not to say that there's anything wrong with just making speeches, or it wasn't just donating money. I mean, most famously, you went to North Vietnam, you went to Hanoi, and you, when you did that, what were you hoping to accomplish just by going there? The only reason I went was to prove that the United States was trying to destroy the earthen dikes of North Vietnam, that it's like Holland, it's below sea level, the Red River Delta is. And if the dikes were destroyed, according to the Pentagon Papers, hundreds of thousands of people would die from drowning or starvation. And um, we were bombing the dikes. And they st- it stopped about a month or two after I came back. And I, I'm, I'm proud of that. But that, that's why I went. You know, when you come back, I mean, there's the, the, the famous photo of you sitting on an anti-aircraft gun, smiling with North Vietnamese soldiers. That seemed a bit tactless. Uh, what, what were you doing behind uh, an enemy gun? I didn't think at the time about how it would be uh, received, and I can understand why people were very confused by that. The soldiers received me there and uh, sang me a song. And I was applauding their song, and this is what was shown on American television. Not only that, but, you know, when I first came back from Hanoi, there was maybe one inch of newsprint in the New York Times about it. It was no big deal. It wasn't until a bit later that they decided to create this myth of Hanoi Jane. Hanoi Jane would henceforth rank right up there with World War II enemy propagandists 
Tokyo Rose and Axis Sally. Which would deter future anti-war activists for doing things as I did, because look what will happen to you. Petition we're circulating asks the Justice Department to prosecute Jane Fonda to the fullest extent of the law. I don't care if she's a tender young female, a famous movie star, that is treason. To which I say, well, really, I'm still here. Mm. And where are you all? <laughs> you know, you, you did apologize for it. Yeah, it was a terrible, thoughtless, irresponsible thing to do. I mean, it's, I did it. I, 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 it was not an active gun. There were no planes in the air. Nothing was happening. But I realized that the image belied everything that I, you know, that I am. I believe in nonviolent civil disobedience. I don't believe in shooting and, and dropping bombs. So it was a terrible mistake, and it was thoughtless. The, the reason I bring that up is not to relitigate something from 50 years ago, but is that in, in this current um, time, there's a lot of conversations in activism about the idea of having to be perfect. You have to be perfect all the time. And I think what I find interesting about that moment, and I hope you can speak to it, is that you're allowed to make mistakes, that you're allowed to apologize and still be an activist. Yes. First of all, never let perfect get in the way of good. The fact that I went to North Vietnam and brought back photographic evidence of the bombing and that it attracted attention to the bombing is was more important than the bad, which was the fact that I was photographed on the anti-aircraft carrier. How are you not? I mean, there's a certain conversation right now that's especially when musicians speak up, you hear, why don't you stick to music or uh, why don't you stick to acting if they're speaking up about these things? What, what do you say to these people? For, first of all, forget them. Just don't even pay any attention. But here's the deal. You know what a repeater is? These are the, the, the antenna at the top of mountains. Their purpose for being up there is to pick up weak signals down in the valley. They don't create the signals in the valley, but they pick them up and repeat them, sending them out to a much wider audience. That's what celebrities do. We're repeaters. We can lift the voices of people who don't get heard, that know the truth and are on the front lines and allow more people to hear them. If you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. My guest today is the Oscar award-winning actor Jane Fonda. She's been called the most politically outspoken star in the history of Hollywood. And in her new book, What Can I Do?, she explains why, at 82 years old, she's been inspired by a new generation of activists. I, I want to talk more about the, the celebrity side of this, but I want to continue to talk a little bit also about the repercussions of speaking up that you faced, especially during that time. Just take a listen to this. Jane Fonda. What in the world is the matter with Jane Fonda? I feel so sorry for Henry Fonda, who's a nice man. She's a great actress. She looks pretty. But, boy, she's often on the wrong track. Jane, what did we just hear? Richard Nixon. <laughs> what did you think when you heard that for the first time? Well, I'd read it. I'd been into the files. You know, when I wrote my memoirs, I got a hold of all the tapes and the files. So I, I knew that he said it. You were arrested re-entering the U.S. from Canada, am I right? That's right. That was when I was arrested. On, According to the arresting officer, he said, that I'm doing this on orders from the White House. Yeah. I was carrying vitamins, and they said they were drugs, and so, and yeah. And it was, it was bad. I mean, your family was concerned for your safety. A lot of actors distanced themselves from you. The media treated you like a traitor. There were protests with people holding up Hanoi Jane placards. Jane Fonda is an outrageous liar. How did you make peace with how you were treated? And most importantly, how do you come out of that situation not being cynical? Cynicism is what I hate the worst. I don't tolerate it in myself or anybody else. I'm not cynical. But here's the thing. You never want to be an activist by yourself. You always want to be embedded in an organization, or in a movement, surrounded by people who, who, with whom you share values and share goals. And that was the case for me. I was part of a movement. You know, we didn't have very much money. I lived in a house with other activists. I mean, there were a lot of us living in the same house. Um, that's what we did in those days. We weren't, all, you know, we were in our 30s and we didn't, and we were relatively poor. <laughs> And so I always had people around me. I was never alone. And that's what made it possible to withstand the assaults that were, that were coming at me. 
you know, I knew who I was. They couldn't tell me who I was. They being the administration and the, you know, the right wingers. And as long as I was solid in who I was and why I had done what I had done, and I was in the bosom of a movement, I was fine. But, but, but you know, you were in the bosom of a movement and you were using your art. I mean, we're talking a lot about, you know, your, 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 your protests and activism and organizing, but you actually used your art. I mean, you look at Fun with Dick and Jane, you look at, you look at a, a Coming Home. How did you incorporate your values and your activism actually into your career in Hollywood? Well, I was, for a number of, of the early years of my activism, my celebrity, um, I found it problematic. You know, unlike most, this is where I'm different than a lot of celebrity activists. I'm on the ground. I was on the ground a lot in different parts of the country. I was at the Superfund sites. I was in the factories of Detroit talking to organizers. I was on Indian reservations and so forth. So the the celebrity kind of separated me from the people that I was working with. You know, I always felt like an outlier. And um, one day I had a friend, he was a black lawyer in Detroit. He was the head of the Revolutionary League of Black Lawyers. Ken Cockrell was his name. And he said to me, he was like my mentor at the time. And he said, I said, I'm going to, I think I'm going to quit Hollywood and become just a full-time organizer. And he said, Fonda, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got, we have, the movement has plenty of organizers. We don't have movie stars. Not only should you stay in the industry, you should pay more attention to your career, be more intentional about your career. And that's where I decided to start making movies that were about things that I cared about. Fun with Dick and Jane and coming home. You know, you want to be a part of it, get your licks in the U.S. of A. And when you get over there, you grow up real quick. China Syndrome. Hello, this is Kimberly Wells, and I'm here at the Ventana Nuclear Power Plant. Nine to five, etc. N- Nine to five is interesting. Nine to five, of course, like one of the finest films, you, know, you and Lily Tomlin and, and Dolly Parton, a song that still gets played on the radio all the time. And I remember watching it when I was a kid. And watching it when you're older is a little bit different because you see it a little bit differently. You see it tackling you know, women's issues like you know, equal pay and flexible work. Did you have any sense at the time that that film would be revolutionary? Yeah, absolutely. One of my best friends from the anti-war movement, her day job was organizing secretaries. Her name is Karen Nussbaum. Karen, when I was with her, would tell me stories about secretaries. And that's when I said, I got to make a movie about this. Couldn't we just all get together and and complain? Complain to who? Let's face it, we are in a pink collar ghetto. Let's have another drink. I just find that so interesting because it does feel sometimes, Jane, like there's a a choice you have to make to either be an activist on the street or to show it through your art. I want to do both. The reason that those films worked was because I had spent time with the kind of people that we were concerning ourselves with. Coming home, for example, I spent years talking to military wives, women who, whose husbands had gone overseas and come back unrecognizable. I knew those men. I talked to hundreds of them and the women who who were married to them. And I could bring that to coming home. The same with the other movies. I was familiar with the people. One of the conversations we're having a lot on this show is about fashion, specifically around sustainability in fashion and fashion and, and climate change. And, and you're an interesting point in this because at the last Oscars, you showed up wearing a six-year-old gown and you declared it was part of a bigger plan not to buy new clothes. H- have you been able to hold yourself to that one? Now, I, you know, I have to say I, I've not changed shape so I can wear clothes that I wore 20 years ago. And so I have a lot of clothes, and, but I'm never going to buy new clothes again. No. What, what spurred that decision? Consumerism. We have to walk our talk. If we are against consumerist society and that contributes to global warming, See, when I grew up, it wasn't that way. Consumerism wasn't what it is today. It just wasn't that important to have a brand, be wearing a brand and so on and so forth. And I read that Greta Thunberg is part of Stop Shop. I'd never heard that word before. And I looked into it and I decided I was going to do that too. Interesting. I, I want to close out like this. There are a lot of activists who have expressed great despair over the climate and anxiety about the future. But you who have been through dark times before, you know, you were through dark times with Vietnam, you were dark times throughout your career. 
I want to go back to something you said. You said cynicism is the, is the thing I like the least in the entire world, but I think it takes work. So how do you keep hopeful and what keeps you hopeful? Well, getting older takes work and getting older really helps because been there, done that, you know, things have been bleak before we survived. We got through. How did we get through staying active? When I start get, getting depressed, I know that the best an- antidote to depression is activism. When you put yourself on the line, the depression disappears. You know, I've been arrested. Before, well, I've been arrested for civil disobedience, but this was very deliberate. You know, this was the first time this fire drill Friday, the four months in D.C. before we went virtual. It was like my idea. And I didn't rely on some guy to give me the narrative. I kind of owned it. So when I, the first day that I was standing on the steps with 15 other people holding our placards and chanting, I felt so good. It was like stepping into myself. When you're putting your whole body on the line for something that you believe in, when you're fully aligned with your deepest values, first of all, it's hard to do that in this day and age. And when you do, there is such a feeling of empowerment. And I realized that the other 14 people felt the same way. And on the last day, four months later, when there were 350 people standing on the steps getting, they, I could see in their faces, they all felt that. And it included a bunch of, of uh, celebrities, Joaquin Phoenix and Martin Sheehan and Susan Sarandon and lots of others. Putting yourself on the line is the key to being hopeful. That's, it's a beautiful way to end it. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Jane Fonda is an actor, producer, fitness coach, and activist. Her new book is called What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action. And it's out on September 29th. My name is Tom Power. All right, let's look at some news before we get going with the rest of the show. Have you ever daydreamed about being invited for a night with royalty? Do you ever watch The Crown on Netflix and go, ah, that'd be nice, I'd like to be there. The closest you might get is coming on September 25th when Queen Elizabeth's Country Retreat will host a few nights of drive-in movies. That's right, if you're in Norfolk, England, you can head to the Sandringham Estate in a couple of weeks to see a double feature of the films 1917 and Rocket Man. Of course, cars will be spread out in keeping with social distancing rules, and I assume horse-drawn carriages will be as well. Turning to some sad news from the world of Canadian country music, singer, songwriter, and yodeler Lucille Starr has died. Known as Manitoba's queen of country music, Lucille Starr emerged from a tight-knit francophone community in Winnipeg in the 50s. She started out in a duo known as the Canadian Sweethearts, but she had her biggest hit as a solo artist with one called the French song, which, check this out, sold over a million copies at the height of Beatlemania in 1964. Lucille was the first Canadian woman to perform at the Grand Ole Opry, the first to be inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. Her family confirmed her passing after a long illness on Friday in Las Vegas when she was uh, 82 years old. I know you're curious to hear this music. Let's take a listen to it. I don't think it gets played on the radio near enough. This is Lucille Starr with Comte le Soleil dit Bonjour aux Montagnes, also known as the French Song. That is the great Canadian country singer Lucille Starr with Comte le Soleil dit bonjour aux montagnes, also known as the French song. Lucille Starr, the first Canadian woman to perform at the Grand Ole Opry, has died. She was 82. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. 
David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm going to play you three songs. I want you to guess what they have in common. Just yell out the answer. You ready? Take a listen. That is The weekend and Earned It. Before that, you heard Miley Cyrus with Wrecking Ball and Celine Dion with A New Day Has Come. What is the common thread? They're all Billboard Hot number 1 hits. Or Hot 100 hits, I should say. Check. They all got tons of play on the radio. Check. They're all songs I cry to in my bedroom while saying, Leave Me Alone, Mom, in a pillow. Check. But the secret sauce to all of those jams is Stefan Macchio. He's a composer, songwriter, and producer. He's been nominated for Grammys and an Academy Award. And he co-wrote all of those songs. Oh, and he also happens to be Canadian. Stefan has written hits for a bunch of other A-list stars like Avril Lavigne, Neo, Dua Lipa, James Blunt, Seal. He's one of the most in-demand hitmakers in music right now. And again, he's Canadian. These days, though, Stefan isn't making the kind of music you'll necessarily find on the Billboard Hot 100. His new album is called Tales of Solace. It's just him on the piano playing 16 original and personal pieces of music he composed. And it wasn't necessarily meant to be this way. But with the pandemic going on, sometimes you just need music to soothe you, to relax you, to make you feel a bit comforted when life seems so unpredictable. And he wrote perfect music for that, too. Stefan Macchio was actually sitting at his piano when we talked, which, as you're about to hear, could not have worked out better. Here's our conversation. I don't want to be glib here, but I feel like it might be meant for the pandemic because your job as a composer is a very solitary one. Like, it feels like you might not a whole lot has changed in terms of inside the house. No, no. And, and you know, in, in a perverse way, um, I, I, I my creed and like a sort of mission statement I made to myself about a year and a half ago when I decided to do this album was I wanted to come back to introspective music music to sort of be alone with yourself too and it was a real it was a real strong commitment to do that then boom uh the world shut down in march um right and right and we literally the artwork that we took for this album was taken two weeks prior in london england and we we photographed a room that resembles a quarantined room because it was literally to match my music we had no idea the world was going to go down in in, in some some shutdown so it was in a perverse way, it was a perfect storm of events. Um, you know, I felt that we needed to reevaluate ourselves. I needed to reevaluate myself for sure. My life was too way too complicated here in LA. I'm a proud Canadian, and um, I just wanted to kind of come back to simple things, if that made any sense. And then all of a sudden, that combined with what was really going on and, and the need for sort of introspective music was just incredible. When you, when you were growing up in Niagara Falls, when you were a kid, was the, wow. was, the Falls. was the piano a place you could go to be introspective, to be sort of by yourself alone with your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, I've been at the piano since I was age three. So I was improvising by like properly improvising by the age of 10 and understanding that I can now start to have a dialogue with the piano. So in a lot of ways, not to sound cliche, but the piano became my therapist and it was very healing sanctuary, if you will, just a kind of an escape. Do you remember the first thing you wrote on the piano? Yeah, it was a song in C major, like a, like a pop song. But I mean, the first piece, I was probably three years old. It was like, it was Bela Bartok-esque. 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds like a Romanian dance to me. It really does. That sounds. Uh... <laughs> and I, what I love, what I love about your story is that it, there's the audacity comes up a lot, and I can't tell whether it's audacity or whether it's just when we're young, we don't know we're taking risks. You know, so you, I think it's that one. So you went, you went to Western uh, uh, University of Western Ontario. You got a degree right. in classical piano. In yes. your second year of school, you send a cassette tape to David Foster, who at this point mm-hmm. is making. Wow making records that are just blowing up. Tell me about that. What inspired you to send it to him and, and, and what happened next? First, congratulations on your amazing research. Um, uh, David was one of the first, first stories of many that were, had this sort of uh, fairy tale ending. Uh, David's now become clearly a big part of my life. Uh, he was a mentor. Uh, now he's a, as a colleague, a very good friend. Um, our relationship has sp- uh, spans um, 25 years now, at least. Uh, I was at I was in university, and at that time I sent him a you know a, a cassette um, of a song I had written, and he David immediately called me back. He was in the height of his like sort of like his golden years as a producer, like you know the Bodyguard soundtrack and Streisand and you know Celine, and he was you know I already probably had sold like five hundred literally five hundred million records, and he called me back to say you're Canadian. I just want to say that you've got the goods to make it, and that phone call just fueled me to to graduate faster. I fast tracked my degree. Um, got the hell out, and uh, and I basically went to L.A. to go meet with David. Um, and then, you know, David, I remember David telling me, you know, if, when, if you move here, you he, his word was you'd become king of this town in terms of music. I would come to L.A., and he would he would oftentimes bring me to dinners. Uh, he introduced me to Babyface, to Clive Davis at the time, you know, at June Pointer from the Pointer Sisters, Kenny G. So, you know, David was a real, he was really kind to me. Um, it, and um, we're both pianists from Canada on top of that. I find this part of your story interesting, and I don't know if it's the most examined part of your story, but I'm always a really big fan of, of when big-time artists start out playing covers. You know, you look at someone like Keith Urban. This is somebody who right. was playing the, the bar circuit in, in Australia for years playing cover songs. You look at the E Street Band. You look, you know, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. You know, they played. They knew how to make people move. And what I love about your story, and which I don't know if you talked about too much, is you played piano at the lounge at yes. the Four Seasons Fantastic. Hotel in Toronto. I would play, play Misty. probably play that 400 times but those years tom i love you for bringing that up because in toronto and yorkville you know one of the basically one of the original four seasons in the world um i played at the bar called la serre for two and a half years six nights a week and i met every character in the world there every celebrity would walk through it was incredible training for for not just life but just understanding the great songbook I mean, I know we're Canadian, but the, the great American songbook yeah. is on top of that. So, you know, I, I learned, you know, the, the Gershwins, the Cole Porters, um, all, all of those songs, I had to get them in my fingers. And I really believe that that was, uh, you know, me getting my, my master's and my doctorate in songwriting. I mean, for years and years, I, you know, I would study these songs, the form, the melody writing. And even just from a like a, a confident level, and just in speaking with people, you know, like I said, I, I, Gene Hackman would come in at the bar. I, I, I a great story that I, mm-hmm. I, which is funny. I was, I was playing this song. Edelweiss. Yes. Watch. And then, and and then, on the turnaround here, I hear. And it was Christopher Plummer. No way! Christopher Plummer was sitting right beside me. And I thought, like, I was looking around. I was, was, might as well think that the Von Trapp family was going to come through the door. But, <laughs> but um, and Julie Andrews, it's, it's, but it was, it was incredible. And, and, you know, and Christopher Plummer says, that's beautifully done, young man. I mean, I was in my early 20s, 21, 22. I was a kid. And, um, um, regardless, I'm really happy you brought that up because um, uh, we, I don't talk about it enough. But uh, it was—it's certainly a huge part of my life. I think I think it's important to talk about. You know, I, I don't want to be an old uh, codger here, but I do think a lot about. You know, when you start out writing original music, how beautiful that is. But there is a joy in in, in studying music because it leads you to to um, understand the architecture of what makes great music. And I want to kind of skip ahead now to one of your first really, really big songs, which is Celine Dion's A New Day Has Come. We listened to it a little bit earlier on. You said that was your first big hit. What changes? Like, what changes the next day? What changes the next week when you have a song like that? A lot. You know, 
overnight success uh, is never overnight success, as we know. Yeah. And I had already been. I was in my. I have to give context of how old I was. I was twenty seven, twenty eight when I you know, and and I was number one in you know in like how many countries globally, and it was number one for twenty one weeks in two thousand twelve, uh, two thousand two, I think. And um, so all of a sudden you become in demand, and you can get in the room with pretty well anybody you want, especially when you're on top of the world, when you've got that that big song. You know, any artist will consider getting in the room, and and I was getting calls, and so that your world um, uh, does change overnight. But it's not to say like like I had been suffering. I had I'd already been like a staff producer at Sony Music in Toronto on Leslie Street at one one two one, and um, I paid my dues. I mean, I, I was working with Philosopher Kings, you know, you know, making records, you know, Chantal Kreviatsik, you know, Our Lady Peace, all those big bands from Canada, and I had an opportunity to get in the room with Aldo Nova in Montreal, and. Uh, and literally my life changed overnight. And then that's when I would say I was my first big international break. I want to uh, listen to one more of your hits for somebody else before we get to your record. Take a listen to this. You know our love would be tragic. So you don't pay it, don't pay it. No mind, mind, mind. We live with no lies. If you're listening to this on the radio, Stefan Macchio, my guest, is playing along with Earned It by the Weekend. We're talking about eventually his new album, Tales of Solace, but we're talking right now about the music uh, he's made for the weekend. I'm, I'm curious about this song and the way it relates to your classical background and to your pop background, because you've said um, that writing mainstream pop music is a lot like uh, writing with one hand tied behind your back. And I know how you don't mean it. You don't mean that it's lesser. You, no, exactly. You mean that it's, it takes a restraint. Like it takes... Bingo. You got to hold back a little bit, right? Yes, 100%. And, and there's, like I said, it's not, you know, there's... Um, there's this elitist view that classical music is, you know, better or just more sophisticated than pop. And I, I, and I can see how that could be construed, but um, uh, not really. Like I, I float in both worlds and, to, you know, you've got great, great pop writers like Max Martin. Um, I'm not necessarily putting myself in that category, but I mean, you know, I'm considered uh, a great pop writer as well, but it's because of my classical background. Um, so you know, I have a, a vast knowledge of, of harmony. Um, but to, simplicity, 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 and knowing when to pull out the fancy chords is so important. Um, and it's interesting that we're talking about earned it <clears throat> because Abel, aka The Weekend, <clears throat> and Jason uh, Dehila, both Canadians, uh, they came they came to me with the germ of that that song idea. And um, but you you can hear a lot of jazz elements in in earned it. So it's 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 um there's a lot of jazz in that song there's a lot of R&B and it's a waltz on top of that and um Oh my it god in, it is a waltz. <clears throat> it is a waltz. Chuck, no no. Chuck, I mean Chuck, 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 Chuck. you're right. Like I mean Abel the weekend was already massive underground. Like he had already built his following but he hadn't really cracked to the world. I mean like all of a sudden overnight um this song you know was part of um just kind of uh, putting him at the forefront and become the biggest one of the biggest artists in the world. There's a timelessness there. You know, I was going to talk about this earlier, but I didn't want to stop the timeline. The, the, the thing that I hear about you and David is that you seem to be able to make hit songs, both of you, outside of trend, which tells me that there has to be a universal. Like, I don't want to believe that there is, but there has to be like a universal that you can have access to that, that can become a hit outside of time, outside of trend, outside of what genre is stylish at the time. You and David seem to be on, like, whether it's Wrecking Ball, Miley Cyrus, whether it's Earned It, whether it's uh, David's version of I Will Always Love You, even though Dolly Parton wrote that, you do seem to understand that there, there might be something universal there. You know what I mean? hundred um, percent. And I think uh, one thing you said that was really interesting is that a lot of great songs, I'm not even talking about the ones that I'm, I'm part of, um, become great because they, they're, they are always breaking the mold of what's going on currently at radio or what have you. So, I mean, you know, Wrecking Ball as well was a ballad. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with ballads in 2013. And all of a sudden you have a great, uh, you know, like take, take Wrecking Ball. Very classical song. 
Um, and then uh, oh, that's a killer it, song, it, though, man. It's a, just a killer. Th- thank you. I yeah. mean, but even that chorus is so tender. It was originally written as a piano melody. I could hear it on your record. I could hear it on the record you, you just could. put out. You could. I mean, and you know, it's the production is just the way a song is disguised. But um, sometimes, you know, a lot of people would want me to copy what was the latest hit on the radio. And it just strips that way at your soul, your artistic soul. And I never got into music to make money. I got into music to move people. I mean, I, you know, I've been broke. So that's why I come back to the intention um, that I, you know, the promise I made to myself in 2018, at the end of 2018, just to come back to the piano. I had to wean all my big projects. I was cutting orchestra for Celine Dion Courage in 2018. And that's when I said, I'm done. I'm going to go back to the piano. Uh, people are, it's a big, it's the fourth biggest genre in the music net in the world now. Spotify has blown that up with their playlists. It's something I do well. It's something that brings me happiness. It's, it's authentic to what I do. You know, I just don't want to become a, a bitter old musician. I'm happy you said it brings you happiness. Let's, let's take a listen to some of it. Take a listen to this. Stefan Macchio uh, from his album Tales of Solace. It's a beautiful collection of 16 solo piano pieces. You're listening to one right now called Fracture, which is the first single. And it made me think about, I've been listening to a lot of, um, this is a bit nerdy here, but I've been listening to a lot of Thelonious Monk uh, mm. recently. And, and I love the way he plays the piano, of course. And then I went, I went looking for interviews. And then I, I kind of stopped myself, which is sort of ironic as someone who does the job that I do. And I said, I don't know if I really need to, I can hear him through his music. I can hear him I can hear who he is perhaps more truthfully through the choices he makes on the piano. And I think that goes for you, too. I mean, you're a lovely person to talk to, but I've heard you talk a little bit about, you know, you are quite yourself. You are you're speaking your whatever language you have within you when you sit down and play the piano. Thank you so much. That's that's really beautiful and kind of you to say. Um, I I know I can be um, I can speak fast and I think the piano just calms me down. It just centers me. Um, you know, I've got a very active mind and, and I, I come back to the piano as a holy place in many ways. And it's just, this album is a conversation between myself and this piano. I really wanted to have an intimate sound and it was really important to me. It was just kind of, I had to stop and breathe and balancing success is sounds so cliche. It's, it's a really tough thing. And, and i my value system got a bit effed up here uh, for a minute here in California. Yeah. I, I find, I because find, I find myself to be a very, overall, a very honest, grounded, you know, person. And I'm Canadian, you know, I, I live in a very capitalistic oh, environment here. Yeah. And more than ever, I feel it, you know, if we're, what we're going through here. And it's just, <clears throat> I'm questioning a lot of things, that's all. And I, you know, I just, I found myself going to the wrong side of life for a minute. Nothing dark, don't worry. I'm not trying, it's not what I'm, I'm insinuating, but I'm just saying, I think that's what happens when you sort of go, okay, what do I want to be for the next chapter of my life? And I felt like I was just trying to chase chase the charts. Uh, I don't don't need to. I've done that. I've already had the big hits. You know, I mean, I'd rather just kind of do something that really moves people and that's authentically who I am. Well, I'm happy you said moves people too. And, and, and I do love talking to you about, about the way the music makes you feel. But I, I want to play one last song <clears throat> on your record. And maybe sure. this is a good way to end it. Take a listen to this. beautiful song that's called sea change i i can't get into this because i get nerdy sometimes i love when someone can play an odd type signatures and still make me feel something you know what i mean thank you no no no, no. That's, that's amazing it's amazing that you're hearing that and and that that particular piece was an improvisation it's it's a personal favorite in that it was just stream of consciousness i didn't compose it i was noodling the piano and when i was listening back to hours and hours of playback um that just just felt so good because after that f minor chord and it goes it goes to A flat. 
and and there's some just some beautiful beauty in that, and that's why I called the sea change, just because it, it shifts so drastically from a, a minor to a happy place. Um, and it's it's sort of the the tide shifting it's a, in the it's, ocean. So I'll close off like this. You know, um, I'm not surprised that piano music is the fourth largest genre of music in the world that's huge on Spotify. You know, composers like Satie have had a, a, a resurgence. You know, mm-hmm. very chill, beautiful, uh, great piano players named Brad Meldow have had, you know, career yes. resurgences right now. And I think it's because there is um, a peacefulness that can often come through that instrument and through this music. And, you know, think about all the things we're facing right now, the pandemic, a, a looming, very important U.S. election, an unprecedented uprising against police brutality and anti-black racism, economic un- uncertainty, family uncertainty. What do you hope your music might give people who are anxious right now that maybe it also gives you? The exact the title of the album, which I worked really hard on, Solace, just just a, a sense of peace and, and healing or escape. Um, you know, we are all no matter our, whatever our class is, all of us, we're in very uncertain times and it's driving people uh, mentally crazy, absolutely mentally crazy. Um, I'm seeing people break down in front of me. I'm seeing people go into deep, deep, deep depression. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, that title was uh, birthed in COVID. The, the entire album was birthed outside of COVID. And it's, I, it's important for me to kind of say that to people. I was, I was feeling the urge, like I said, to come back to simple, simpler things. But that title I gave... Um, in these times and Tales of Solace is, means just these 16 vignettes, these nocturnal pieces on this album are just 16 pieces to hopefully bring you comfort. And I hope it does because it does for me. I listen, I've listened to this album probably 20,000 times. I'm still, still brings me right back down to, to a place where I can breathe. Stefan Macchio is a Grammy and Academy Award-nominated composer, producer, and songwriter. His new solo album is called Tales of Solace, and it's out now. One of my favorite moments of the interview was when he went to the piano and started playing songs that we knew from the radio, like Earned It by The Weeknd, or the moment where he played Wrecking Ball by Molly Cyrus in a way I'd never heard it before. So let's, let's play the real thing, shall we? This is a song co-written by Stefan Macchio. This is Miley Cyrus and Wrecking Ball. All right. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to break your walls. All you ever did was wreck me. Yeah, you, you wreck me. Miley Cyrus and Wrecking Ball from 2013, co-written by Stefan Macchio. My name is Tom Power. That's a song called Legend, and it's a tribute to the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. The person singing that song is a reggae singer named Coffee. She was 17 years old when she released it. And ever since Usain Bolt, his very self, posted that song to Instagram, well, Coffee's life hasn't quite been the same. I mean, don't get me wrong, Coffee was already an accomplished artist on her own, but the day Usain co-signed her talent, people started paying attention in a whole new way. Since then, fans have come to recognize Coffee as an exciting young artist from Spanish Town, Jamaica, who's tapped into her country's highs and its lows, especially thanks to this. Blessings all from life and- That is Toast, Coffee's huge banger, gigantic jam off her EP Rapture, the big anthem of 2018. That gave Coffee her first ever Grammy last year, making her the first woman and the youngest artist to win Reggae Album of the Year. I got to talk to Coffee recently about her rise, about her music, about the past, present, and future of reggae. I should uh, note, though, at one point we started talking about um, Toots Hibbert of Toots and the Maytals, you know, legendary uh, reggae musician. That's an understatement of the year. And I mentioned an interview I was about to do with him. That's now been postponed because we learned he's recovering from some health issues. Our thoughts and our love are with Toots and his family right now. Either way, here's my conversation with Coffee. You know, the story goes that you decided to pursue music 
uh, more seriously after you learned you weren't accepted into sixth form at school, which over here in Canada would be the equivalent of not getting into grade 12, which allows you to apply for college or university. Up until that moment, what did you think you were going to do with your life? I was going to become a pharmacist. A pharmacist? Yep. What made you want to be a pharmacist? It was going to make me good money, I think. <laughs> good enough, good start, fair start. Was 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 music the second choice, or or was it even not even just a possibility for you? I didn't think about it um, as a main career choice. It was always a passion for me, so I just treated it as such. Do anything in my spare time. I guess you could still be a pharmacist if you wanted to be. I think so. You know, maybe <laughs> Thank you. maybe ten twenty years down the road. <laughs> Thank you. You know, uh, but when it comes to being an artist, you've said that if you have the talent, that's a start, but you need the courage. And it sounds like you had a moment that you, you knew you had the courage to pursue it. But when did you know you had the talent to pursue it? Um, I feel like I always knew I had the talent, but I gained the courage at about 16 years old. Um, so I started performing at my high school. And then at 17, I was able to write the tribute for Usain Bolt, which kind of, as you said before, was the start of everything. And then, and then when you did that, you said, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to be able to do this. I think I'm going to be able to pull this off. Yeah, pretty much. I want people to hear a little bit of that talent right now. Take a listen to this. Under the pressure, under the pressure, yeah, under the pressure, under the pressure. If you watch up and take away now, we cheat in a second, cause we all under pressure, my friend. Sometimes when you feel it, you cry down. I reach your heart, you know, but do not make it stress because it's happy to be better not be living and it gets up to be under the pressure, my friend. Yeah. That's Pressure, the latest single from Spanish Town's own Coffee. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that song? That was actually one of the first songs I wrote in my journey. So I wrote that probably after Burning, which was my first single. So even though I'm just releasing it now, it kind of still have that fire and that passion, that, that specific fire and that specific passion that I started my journey with so at that point I was really just kind of rooting for youth and rooting for myself and just kind of being like yo I don't care if my school doesn't accept me I'm just like a burn down the city in a good way either way so that was that was where I was at so yeah with that song I mean you gain a bit of a reputation for talking about things like gun violence and and poverty in your music which is not necessarily the types of topics that we look to from an artist just coming out of our teen years. What what yeah. made those topics stuff you wanted to explore? Um, I don't think it was a matter of choice, like about wanting to explore, but it was just um, in my dark environment. So usually when I write music, it's directly influenced by what I'm going through or what I'm seeing or like, you know, what I'm able to relate to at the moment. So that was my reality. Maybe not necessarily like having gunmen in the back of my yard, but I know like around me in, in my community and in the nearby communities, people who I go to school with, them kind of understand it. And yeah, I think it was just, it was only right, I believe. Is, is writing about it a way of dealing with it? I think so. It's one of the ways of dealing with it. Do you feel different after you've written a song about it? Not exactly after I finished the last line and put the full stop, but when I release it and I realize that, you know, people kind of, tune into it, I realize it can be an outlet for mass movement in terms of just like how Vice Cartel, for instance, who's a fellow Jamaican artist, can sing about clerks and of the entire country kind of raving on and on and buying fresh clerks. Everybody off the axe when me get my clerks. Everybody off the axe when me get my clerks. The leather hard, the sweat soft. Toothbrush get out the dust fast. Everybody off the axe when me get my clerks. I mean, I feel like I can sing against violence and have youths coming up listening to me be impacted by that and later on kind of put on the gun because specifically them hear a coffee song you never know you know who are some of the artists that inspired you to talk about real things in your life artists like protege chronics uh, yeah even frank ocean like on the more emotional side um bob marley from a more political emo like it's very rounded Bujubantan. i could go on and on still I I know that your Christian faith, and and you've talked about the ways the church has helped you make you who you are today. What what yeah, what, sure. what role does your faith play in in your music? Um, everything I've learned up until the age of like about 
17, 18, had something to do with church because I was born in the church and I used to go like basically every week with my mom. It was just a family tradition. And I feel like as such, I was able to be influenced as an entire being, like as a person by the things that I learned growing up. So from music to just like Bible passages to, you know, different practices or different ways of thinking, I feel like I've adapted. Some of them have let them go as well. I'm not a diehearted Christian at the moment, but I do have a very good sense of like spirituality. I'm interested to hear that, that I think a lot of us feel that way, that we're not necessarily diehard Christians at the moment, but we... There's still, there's something sort of indescribable in there, you know what I mean? Like, what 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 do you think your spirituality gives you? I would say insight and perspective mainly. I don't know how else to explain it, but definitely perspective is a huge thing um, about just the life. And I think my upbringing and my beliefs definitely give me a certain perspective that allow me to be the best me. I think it sounds like that might be where, I mean, throughout this interview already, we've talked a lot about gratitude and you've mentioned gratitude a few, a few times. Is that where that comes from? Does it come from the church? Not only the church, but I've always known my mom to be a very grateful person and somebody who just always gives thanks and you know gives respect where it's due. And what role has she played in the kind of music that you make? She's been a very, very good support. She's been behind me in everything that I've done since I started doing music. And uh, she's just been my biggest rock. <laughs> good. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of parents who would be worried about their kid, you know, getting into music, right? That's true. You know? She was a bit at first because I was literally jobless out of school. But after a while, she kind of grasped that he was doing something good. <laughs> what, what, what was the turning point? When did she start to get it? After my first song, Burning. I think after like listening to my lyrics and my content and seeing the response to it of you know my country, that definitely gave her a confidence boost. Like we believe, saying I'm not gonna come and wreak havoc in the planet. I'm just gonna try to do good. I want to talk a little bit about your mom, but I want to play a song first, and it's not one of your songs, okay? So so t- yeah. take a listen to this. <laughs> just joining us this is q i'm tom power my guest coffee the song you're hearing right now what's well, a cover of bob marley's waiting in vain it came out about a decade before coffee was born coffee do you know who that is no who's that legendary coco tea ah. <laughs> nice your mom's a big fan right she's she's a big fan of coco tea you i read an interview where you called coco tea your musical father what do you mean by that I was actually responding to rumors that he's my, my actual father. What? He looks like me. Yeah, and his name is Coco T. My name is Coffee. So typical Jamaican thing to assume. So I was actually clarifying the fact that he's my musical mentor, my musical dad, which he is because he brought me out um, on stage to an event called Rebel Salute, which is one of the biggest or one of the bigger reggae events that still happen in Jamaica. And that introduced me to the older Jamaican audience and people who probably wouldn't have tuned into me or, you know, had faith in me as an artist, even up to this day. I got that with the help of Kokoti. So he is an actual musical father for me. What do you love about his music? He's very sweet and very pure. I think he's one of those artists who just kind of speaks his mind. I kind of similar to Bob Marley, the same style. He just kind of speaks his mind. And I think his music is believable. So you know that his messaging is true to him. It is interesting. You're talking about Coco T and you're talking about Bob Marley. I mean, these are artists that, I mean, Bob Marley wasn't even alive when you were born. wasn't alive when I was uh, born either. Yeah. But it is interesting that as a young artist, you do have a connection to pioneering artists like artists that came before you i believe that's important as well um for anybody especially like an artist or a creative to kind of understand the, the history of the space that they're in why is it important i think it allows you to complement 
the way things have been going instead of I think sometimes we can really get ahead of ourselves as creatives individually and believe that our thing is just so the bomb and we just kind of go off in our own direction but I think it's always beautiful when somebody can add to something and you know add to it continuously and allow it to continue to be great in in its own way rather than to take something over completely and kind of disregard what had been happening before yeah I know what you mean it's it's sort of like you You'd think that it would be good to think that you came up with something yourself, you know, that you were this yeah, original yeah. artist. But it, it can be actually quite comforting to know that you're part yeah. of something, you know? True, very true. Uh, you know, I'm talking to Toots soon. Toots from Toots and the Maytals. Like, yeah. I, I would like to surprise him with a question from you. Anything you want to ask Toots Hibbert from Toots and the Maytals? Um, Take your time. Probably what what has been his most continuous inspiration or what has what has been one thing that he's always been able to turn to as a creative, like something that never fails him? That's probably what I would ask him. Well, let me ask that to you. What's what's your answer to that? So far, it has been my spirituality and just my ability to kind of reset and, you know, pull away from everybody and be by myself and just kind of reflect and get my mind where it needs to be. So far, that's what it's been. You don't find it hard? I find it hard with phones and computers and music and books and everything just to, to actually take time to myself and be alone with my thoughts. Um, it's not very difficult for me, to be honest. I think I've always been like somewhat of a, of a loner. I don't know if it's always been healthy, but I think it's always been easy for me. Any... Any women in reggae that you look up to? Um, I feel like every woman that I know of in reggae has been able to influence me positively. Even, um, I think, from the I-trees to ladies now like Lila I.K. and Sevana, who are younger, closer to my age. I think once I know of them, they inspire me in some way, kind of give me that belief in my heart that, yeah, you can do it. And, you know, just believe in yourself and keep doing the thing. Yeah, and you're going to be that for a lot of people in reggae music. Does that ever occur to you? I appreciate you saying that. No, actually, I don't think it needs to occur to me. <laughs> but I appreciate you mentioning that. You know, and the reason I, I, I started talking about this in the first place, you know, when you won the Grammy last year for Reggae Album of the Year, which I was watching, by the way, because a friend of mine was also nominated on the pre-show, so I watched you win the award. There was a lot made out of the fact that you were the youngest to win it, uh, but it was, it's also worth mentioning that you're the first woman to win Reggae Album of the Year after decades and decades of phenomenal women making reggae music. Yeah. What do you make of that, that you're the first one to win that? Um, I feel like now is the time for kind of reset for the world, for kind of reset their thoughts or, you know, opinions of the industry, the, themselves, their abilities, you know, the distance between them and perhaps I think like the Grammy ceremonies or something. I think now is a time for the world to really reflect and be like, yo, you know what? Regardless of whatever has happened or hasn't happened in the past, it's now possible because of this moment. Like this always where we stand right now in our journey and in our history. I feel like now is just the time for that. That's what my Grammy, me winning a Grammy is about more than even me winning the Grammy, I think is a is a world inspiration. It's just for people to be like, yo, you know what? It's not as impossible as I thought before. It's really an encouragement, really and truly. It sounds it sounds like that's something you think about, like women and, and gender equity and, and representation in in your music. Well, not not as a as an outright mission, but I think in my being, I do appreciate you know women being highlighted, understanding the fact that it doesn't happen as often as I think maybe it could, and I do understand that my like me being a woman can be an inspiration to many others who never even saw themselves accomplishing certain things. So I really do embrace that ability and disposition I'm in. Can I ask you about Toast? Sure. One of your first big singles, it's a jam. You were quoted as saying, though, that you weren't sure that Jamaica would embrace the sound you were bringing with that song. Why did you feel that way? I started out as like more of a roots reggae artist. And I think that means kind of the theoretical definition of reggae like a one drop beat so i definitely started out singing on that kind of track and the country started to accept me as such and i feel like jamaica is very tricky just as probably any other market or audience where i try to please so i was wondering at the time if based on my first two songs which were completely reggae if me kind of raising the bar with my 
expectations of myself or kind of switching it up a little bit as it relates to genre or just being a bit more confident to step in another realm if that would have been received by my country as what it was like just a simple not even experimentation but um exploration then or or would it be taken as like a sellout so i was really concerned about that at the time when did you start to know that that it was that things had kind of worked out Almost immediately, you know, like after I released the song and I was hearing feedback from like my label in the UK and just people like from different parts of the world, my family members all over just kind of giving me good feedback. I think that kind of showed me that, yeah, it's actually not so bad. I think it's hard for, this might be a bit of a hard question for you yourself to answer, but I, I kind of want to ask it anyway, because as much as we were talking about you in the long line of great Jamaican reggae musicians, there's a lot made out of the fact that you're doing something different. And I wonder, like, what do you think it is about what you do, about your approach to the music that might make it a bit different than what artists have done before you in Jamaica? I just sing from my heart. Like, whatever I do, I just express literally from my heart. And I feel like that makes anybody unique. Because if we all do that, then we'll never come up with the same thing. Because <laughs> we're not, not going to find two of the same people. What about the vision you have for your music? Is it different than the vision you had when you were first that kid writing songs in Spanish Town? When I was writing songs at first, I never really had a vision. I never wanted to be an artist or anything like that. So it is like after releasing the tribute and like my first single and then my EP and just doing different things, like I've kind of been able to grasp the responsibility more or grasp the position I mean, like of being an artist and like a public figure and a person of influence. And as I go along, I think, being true to myself will first making sure that I am my best self and then being true to my best self will always be fruitful. It sounds like you have a really unique perspective and I'm, I'm not surprised things have worked out so well for you because not only is your music incredible, but you also have a great perspective on all this. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's lovely to talk Thank to you. you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Blessings. I mean, what is life going to be like after the pandemic? What is life going to be like after the quarantine? Coffee addressing that on our latest single called Lockdown. Before that, you heard my conversation with Coffee, Grammy Award winning reggae singer from Spanish Town, Jamaica, currently working on a new project as we speak. So we'll keep you posted on that. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, 25 years ago, Shania Twain released her album, The Woman in Me. It was the end of Shania Twain, Eileen, the cruise singer, and the beginning of Shania Twain, worldwide superstar. We're going to talk about that album 25 years on. See you then, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.